welcome to a bonus episode of Rework, the podcast by Basecamp about the better way to work and run your business. I'm Sean Hildner. And I'm Waylon Wong. Earlier this week, Basecamp co-founder and CTO David Heimeyer Hansen sat down with Jason Calacanis, an entrepreneur and angel investor who hosts This Week in Startups. The last time these guys went head-to-head was March 2013, so they had a lot to catch up on and argue about, including the gig economy, democratic socialism, and class mobility. Today on the show, we're bringing you part of that conversation. If you want the whole two-hour uncut enchilada, go to thisweekinstartups.com or listen to This Week in Startups on whatever app you use to listen to Rework. Now, here's Jason Calacanis interviewing David Heinemeyer Hansen. I tell people who work for me that the average person in our investment company puts in, I think, 45 to 55 hours a week. Of that, probably 30 to 45 is in the office and probably five is like responding to emails or texts and stuff like that off hours. I think a solid 50 and sometimes 60 is like the upper bounds of not burning out. That's where I've come to in my career is like... There are times when things are competitive and you you have to ratchet things up. I've been in those situations. But I think sustainability for me is somewhere in that 50-hour-a-week range. What do you think a sustainable work schedule is? I mean, obviously, it varies by person, but let's just say in business, you're in a competitive environment, you want to win. Yeah. I think what's also fascinating about this is that we don't have to sort of just grasp numbers out of personal anecdotes, that this kind of stuff has been studied intensely as well. And it's been codified into these social contracts that you were going to have eight hours for work, eight hours for play, and eight hours for sleep. That working a 40-hour work week is actually a really uh, well-designed system. And it wasn't designed out of benevolence. Like It was Henry Ford constructing the Model T assembly line going, do you know what? If I yeah. make my workers work 50 hours a week or 60 hours a week, they just end up making more mistakes, putting parts in the wrong way. And I have to take essentially automobiles that aren't working right back and fix them. And it costs more. His other reasoning was, I want my workers to have a car and have a longer weekend to go drive yes. it somewhere yes. and stay at a motel overnight. Yes. So he's actually thinking, and I think this is one of the things that tech people have to start thinking about is, what do we want the consumer base to be? And when you think about minimum wage, one of the best arguments for Apple or Amazon paying 15 or 20 bucks an hour, which is the minimum wage in Australia and other you know, sort of more functioning democracies, is like, you know what? If they have that extra five bucks, maybe they buy an iPhone, you know, every 18 months instead of 36. Like, it's actually going to benefit you in the long term. And they did it up in Seattle. They thought the restaurants were going to all go out of business. And it turns out they had more customers. And it was like, hey, geniuses, the people who work at the restaurants are going to other restaurants because they can afford it again. Yeah, it's one of those things where just like, hey, if we just made a slightly fairer, uh, equitable society, oh, wait, it's better for everyone. Like having just a tiny handful of people hoarding everything at the top, it doesn't even benefit the tiny handful of people hoarding everything at the top. You end up creating a worse society in all the factors, right? Not just the economy, but politically and socially. and, And on any factor you care measure the prosperity and security success of a society, you end up just fucking it up. Like, you really need to design society around, like, something like a a Rawls veil, where you go, hey, if I didn't know where I end up, how do I want society to work? If I can't decide at the 
inception that I'm going to be part of the 1%, what kind of support systems would I like? What would I like my healthcare system to look like? What would I like my education system to look like? What would I like my uh, socioeconomic support system to look like? It's not yeah. super complicated uh, moral philosophy here. You grew up in Denmark? Yes. I know you went to university there. And, and that is interesting. There's a term, getting to Denmark, which means getting to a high-functioning society yes. amongst the elites in the globe, like when they go to Davos and other places. I haven't been to Davos, but at other conversations with these globalist-type people, they're like, we have to get to Denmark, which is a really great compliment. It means what the people want is what they get in their government. Yeah, when we look at America and how amazing we've performed on a capitalistic basis, but how poorly we've performed in government services, healthcare and education are a disaster here. We spend the most, we get the least. But on a capitalist basis, we have the giant companies that for a little 300 million person country are taking over the globe. Uh, and we are the benefactors of that as a country. What do you think about that balance where our government's completely dysfunctional? We don't get what we need out of it, yet we spend all this money. But capitalism unconstrained capitalism in America, I would call it, or very vibrant, uh, you know, less rules-based capitalism, let's call it, fluid capitalism, extreme capitalism. There's got to be a word for it. Late stage. Late stage, I think, is the insulting word for it because it kind of says, like, this is the end yes. of the game. So late stage capitalism or extreme capitalism, I'll call it. Was it worth it or not worth it? Because we do, you know, have Google and Facebook and Amazon and all these incredible services, Uber, Airbnb. We we are the owners of those as a country, those companies, right? So was it worth it or not? Well, first of all, we're not the owners. There's a small handful of people who are the owners who get the lion's share of the benefits of those companies. So positing as though, like, hey, this is a shared benefit to America is doing a disservice to all the people who this is not a benefit at all. In fact, they are the prey. Uh, if you look at companies like Facebook and Google, there's certainly people who benefit from it. And then there are certain people oh, who are yeah. being exploited by it. And I think perhaps that's even more concrete when you look at the gig economy and you look at companies like um, Uber or DoorDash or, or any of these other atrocious companies who essentially have built their wealth off exploitation and violation of people and misclassifying them as uh, as contractors instead of workers. But let's put that aside and take the big picture first, which is, Sort of, is capitalism a good thing? This is one of those arguments that I always find so fascinating because, in the context of you saying getting to Denmark, that's the goal, right? Denmark is a capitalist system. What are you talking about? They're free markets. They're free companies. They're not state-owned companies. Much of Western Europe has simply decided that there's certain parts of the economy, that certain parts of society, that operate poorly under market economics. They are education. And healthcare in particular. So if you look at uh, most of Western Europe, and it's not just Denmark, although all of Scandinavia is a particularly well-functioning example of the government running healthcare, not paying for insurance, running. Like the doctors at the hospitals, they're employed by the government. Same thing in the UK. And you take education, the universities in Denmark, they're not sort of private universities where the government kicks in on, on the debt scale. No, they're run by the government. And you know what? They're run really well. 
Well, in fact, when I came from Denmark to here, I was astounded at just how poorly those two parts worked. When I came to the U.S., I had a, a girlfriend at the time who was enrolled in Loyola University, and first of all, the cost was just obscene. I think we were paying something like thirty or thirty-five grand a year for uh, for that. I, I forget the specifics. Which, when you come from a country like Denmark, where education is not only paid for by the government, there's a stipend for any student to cover basic living expenses. Explain that because that's mind-blowing to Americans. Explain how the stipend works. How much is it? How do you get it technically? You get about a thousand bucks a month to pay for your living expenses while you attend university. And you can do this for up to, I think, like six years or something, which a master's degree in Denmark is, is usually around five years, and then they allow you one year to essentially gap it. Most people don't necessarily finish their master's degree in five years. And then I think there's probably also an extension available if you pursue a PhD. The interesting part for me, though, where you can sort of say, how is this affordable? Is that in an American frame of mind, you think like, oh, is the government really paying like 30 or 40 or 50 grand a year for all these students? Of course they're not. The education system is incentivized to be efficient. My entire education at the Copenhagen Business School, I looked at this once and I thought it was something like $18,000 for a three-year bachelor's degree. That was what it cost the Danish state to produce that education. And you go like... Well, that's obviously a lot less. I know there are some examples where in-state tuition and so on and so forth. But if you just say, what does it cost to educate anyone who wants a higher education and give them the stipend to allow them to live while they do so? What will it cost society? And the answer is a whole lot less than you would think. A whole lot less than what is spent on the American system, which is a system that's heavily gate kept, right? Where either you have to have these yeah. extreme uh, grades and you almost have to prepare for college and kindergarten, or you have to be very wealthy. I and mean, that's a broken system. And then on healthcare, it's the same thing. Denmark has great healthcare. Now, every society, even if they have great healthcare, have people who complain about that healthcare. That's just the, the nature of it, right? But if you look at the overall stats, uh, life expectancy and, and all these basic things, Denmark does just way better than the US. And Denmark spends something, I think it's like 8% of GDP, and the US spent 18% of GDP on healthcare. So you go, here you have two of the most important functions of society, healthcare and education. The American system is a for-profit capitalist system that is just being whipped by state-funded and run systems. And you go like, do you know what? That should just give you some room for pause here, that maybe the capitalist system in all factors of the society is not the clear answer. That doesn't mean that we can't have for-profit companies producing phones. Yeah, that works great. Like, hey, get your phone on the free market. You just, you're not that interested in the free market when you're about to die. Yeah, I mean, it, it does seem like when you do this hybrid of Because we do have Medicare and we have some state-sponsored things and we have some like... And people love them. Well, they do love them. Yeah. It's like they're fighting for it. That's how they yes. make their decision on how to vote is for that. Yes. So it is even more... We just have to go one way or the other. You know, I think it has to be completely capitalistic or it has to be, you know, in a free market where customers are paying. But this, we've picked the worst of all worlds. To tie it to employment yes. creates the most unhealthy dynamic. I mean, I have people who can't work for some of the startups I've invested in because the healthcare is not good right, enough, right. or they can't leave a company that's hit scale because they can't get as good healthcare. So now you have employers dealing with employees who either don't want to go or don't want to leave, and it just creates this total dysfunction, right? Like in terms of like we were talking about before. In the Isn't that ironic that here you have a market sort of approach that's essentially undermining the free market? It's undermining the, the free movement of, of labor, 
people can't change jobs, they can't do all these things. And what are we doing this for? For some sort of ideological obsession that the free market is the right answer for everything? It is so clearly not the right answer for healthcare. And I think failing to address that is creating some of those uh, great frictions in American society and in American politics. And I think hopefully we're finally getting to the point where people have just had enough. And of course they've had enough. You, you look at all the objective measures of uh, medical bankruptcies or, or the outcome of the medical system, you go like, this shit is broken. Big time. And I say that as someone who's very rich in sort of comparison to to sort of the standard and I can afford any kind of healthcare I want. And I've gotten any kind of healthcare I've wanted. And the system is still completely insane. I go in to get some sort of checkup. I have to fill out more papers than, I don't know, applying for a driver's license in the Soviet Union would have required, right? Yeah. You go like, the system is baroquely bureaucratic and just the whole wrestling of everything with insurances and so on. It is just bust. Like, on all objective factors, the system is just bust and it needs to be replaced. Yeah. I mean, in this, we are in agreement. And it seems like when you talk about getting to Denmark, America, it seems like it takes an extra decade or two to get through these things. If you look at gay marriage and you look at cannabis regulation, you know, we're so far behind on these things. And no, no, this is what gives me such hope about America that for all the failings in America, there is absolutely a willingness to change. Cannabis, not legal in Denmark. It's not legal in Denmark? Not legal in almost all of Europe. There is a That's uh, crazy. Portugal and in Holland, these things, there's either decriminalizations or full-on legalization. It's not legal anywhere else. And this has happened wow. in the US in a very relatively short amount of time. And this is what gives me such hope and why I agitate so lively for, for all these advantages. I know American can do this. And I know it particularly so because, as you said at the start of this, is America is uniquely rich. You look at GDP per capita, America just Bonkers. trounces Denmark. It's more than 20% higher GDP per capita in the US than it is in Denmark. Yeah. The money is here. It's just being spent very poorly. Yeah. 18% of GDP spent on healthcare, bonkers, right? The fact that the federal government can't provide these services is simply just a factor of taxation. The US collects something like 17% of GDP in taxes. Compare that to France or, or Denmark, and it's in the in the mid to high 40s. Literally in Denmark, we collect three times the amount of GDP per capita to provide these basic services to society. And what do you get? You get Denmark is literally number two on the list of happiest people in the world. Number one is Finland, yeah. which has a very similar system to to Denmark, right? Yeah. And the U.S., I think, is 19. And if you just think about, like, also when people get pregnant uh, and have babies, you get time off paid for by the government or by companies? How does it work? Uh, usually it's a bit of a combination, but yeah, that's a great point yeah. because this is really all of the Western industrialized world has paid parental leave. And the U.S. has none. Yeah. Like literally zero weeks assigned uh, in general worker protections. You go to a place like Denmark, you get uh, six months off at full pay, and then you can take additional time after that at reduced pay. I have three kids. Well, we have three kids. And having gone through that, I just, I can't even imagine someone who has only like two weeks from yeah. when, when they have a kid until the partner who had the kid has to get back to work. You go like, Jesus, that is just inhumane. And Why? Why do we need that, right? So uh, uh, that's yeah. one area where I, I'd actually give tech some kudos, that there's been some movement here on policy that a lot of tech companies actually have quite generous parental leave programs now. Obviously, that should just be a societally 
why things. And also, I, I should actually say, tech companies have these wide, generous policies for their treasured unicorn employees, their engineers, their designers, their project managers. They're not exactly giving these benefits out to their gig workers or their call center staff or, or any of the other yeah. uh, worker areas of the economy. Perfect, perfect segue. You were lamenting the gig worker economy and that they're being exploited. I'm curious if you look at being a, a ride-sharing driver or delivering food as an entry-level, you know, I'm going to work at 20 hours a week and make whatever, 12 to $20 an hour, depending on how busy it is. Do you have a problem with that or do you have a problem with it starts to tip over into full-time, they should get benefits? Because it seems to me like these jobs have already existed and nobody complained about them. But if Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash become large companies, then all of a sudden it's like, well, this feels unfair. Well, it's just exploitation on an industrial scale. And I think there are many problems here. One problem is that no one is taking home after expenses 12 to 20 bucks an hour. There's been numerous studies on this. Basically, everything hinges on the fact that you convince gig workers to run down the assets that they have. You convince them to run down the asset like their car, defer maintenance, defer uh, depreciation, basically not dealing with any of the costs of actually providing the service. So even in the best of cases, or I don't even know if it's a best case. Even in the case where someone just works 10 hours a week because they want to make some extra cash is utterly exploitive. The fact that gig workers are not being paid for their expenses, the fact that they're not being paid while they're waiting between jobs. I saw one study just come out, was it last week, about the fact that uh, Uber and Lyft are majorly contributing to congestion in cities, to to traffic, because 40% of the time spent working for these apps are spent without passengers in the car. And those 40% of that hours, they're not being paid for that hours. You're like, what? So if a freelancer, though, I mean, you, you've you worked with a lot of freelancers. If a freelancer is between writing blog posts or designing logos, but they want that flexibility, shouldn't they be able to have it and be 1099? Or can only rich people be 1099? Sure. But I think there's just a material categorical difference between someone who's making essentially no money after you account for expenses or whether that makes up for it or not. Everyone I've ever known who've done consulting in tech, they don't charge like what a full-time worker would get paid per hour. They charge, what, three, five, ten times as much because they know that the job and the income is lumpy. So you might have a great contract yeah. here for, for a month that's full-time, great. But you've got to make essentially three months' pay to fill up your funnel and, and, and deal with that. So it's just not at the same scale. I think that the fundamental underlying issue here is that uh, geek workers, as you say, they should be paid 15, 20 bucks an hour after expenses, accounting for time spent servicing the platform. And that includes the time driving from dropping off one patron to to picking up the next. Yeah, I think now Uber is doing that. They pay for that time, but I don't think they pay for the wait time. And there's a minimum now with the 50 cents a mile fees. So I don't think you're correct in that they're making under what would be minimum wage in any case, because why would millions of people then choose those jobs, David, if there are so many other jobs that are looking. Like, why would you choose to do this if there are so many out there? They're not. This is desperation. It's kind of like, why would anyone ever get a payday loan? You know what the interest rates are in payday loans? They're outrageous. Why would anyone ever do it? This is a multi-billion dollar industry. When you have an asset like a car and you need cash, sometimes you will look at that equation and go, do you know what? It may be I'm deferring maintenance. It may be I'm running down my asset, but that's tomorrow. Today, I need 80 bucks. 
So I'm going to drive for Uber or Lyft or DoorDash. Or all three. Yeah, I mean, or all three. Most people are using multiple, yeah. And then on the long scale, I'm not going to make any money, but the long scale just doesn't matter. Tomorrow matters. Paying the bill that's due now matters. Picking up groceries matter. And this is kind of the preying on the precarious that I find just so disappointing. And I find it doubly disappointing because I remember when Uber first came out and it was essentially uh, black cars, right? Um, yep. And and I thought like, wow, what a great idea. And this was a relatively expensive service because it is relatively expensive to have a private chauffeur, right? This is the other illusion we have here is that like suddenly everyone could afford to have private chauffeurs, private shoppers doing all this work for them while those workers were being well-paid and the companies turned into multi-billion dollar companies. No, no. Society didn't just fundamentally change in any of those ways such that we could all enjoy an army of servants. So I think that there's some fundamentals here that are uncomfortable. I think these companies are continuing to be unprofitable because the real product that they have, for example, getting chauffeured around, is a high-end luxury product that people just can't afford at the scale of its current use. That maybe there's a great Uber that's a $2 billion company or an $800 million company, or whatever the size of the industry was for black caps. Be, ca- be careful with the valuation talk, David. I still have a big piece of that company. <laughs> Let's not run down the valuation just yet, okay? <laughs> well, I think this is exactly why I need to talk about it, right? Because I don't have a piece of any of these companies, which is why I talk about valuations in, in general, because I think they're really important. And it's really important to examine who owns these companies, who funds them, and look at like how does that maybe bias their view on, on whether we should have a, a broad social net and whether companies should be required to hire people as employees. These are the conversations we absolutely need to have. Well, I mean, the the argument, I think, for low prices for Ubers is that it gives, back to the discussion about, you know, people having access to stuff, it gives a larger group of people access to actually get a ride when they need one, right? If if I lived in Brooklyn in the boroughs, you couldn't get a taxi. You know, you might be able to get what they called a gypsy cab back in the day. You pay somebody under the books in an illegal car, three or four bucks to take you somewhere. And and Uber does provide a really safer, much safer, tracked down to the millisecond, like where the car is and vetted approach than those cabs, right? Well, and so that was progress in my mind. Maybe, right? You saw the Uber safety report, what, 2,000 rapes in a year or something like that, or assaults? or Well, I mean, you have to understand the denominator on these as well. I mean, the denominator is giant. They did 1.7 billion rides in a quarter. Sure. So just, just let, let's not pretend that they've solved the inherent safety issue that is getting into a stranger's personal car, right? They haven't, right? Maybe they made things better. And I don't even want to argue that point. I, I do. <laughs> I think they've made it I think it made it much safer than a cab. You're right. Uber is a better product in user yeah. experience. There's no doubt about and that. And safer. Right? You admit it's safer. Maybe. I, I, I'm not going to concede that point, but we can put that one aside. I would because here's the thing. It, it has to be safer because... You know exactly where the cab is at every point, and you have the credit card number of the passenger. So for both parties, you have their entire history of where they've taken people, and you have the minute-by-minute location, second-by-second location of the car. With a cab, people used to share licenses in the yellow cabs, and they could drive anywhere, and they're not tracked. And there's no central dispatch tracking it in real time where you can press the safety button and say, there's a problem. 
Sure. On remediation, on following up, if there was a great investigation into these claims, you would have more data, no doubt about it. One of the key problems with Uber and other platforms is they've been very reluctant to do that. Not only have they been reluctant to do that, they've been actively interfering in investigations. One of the main scandals that came out before Uber went public was when one of the senior executives went to India to essentially get the medical records on a rape victim there because it was looking bad. I think this story is very muddy on whether safety is actually better. Yeah, I think there's been some regime change there. Yeah, sure, right? What do you think the result should be of, because this is one of the statistics I got early on from TK and other folks was, and it's still true today, the majority of drivers are switching from 10 hours to 50 hours the next week, like massive swings in how often they want to work and how they want to work. You're a proponent of people having agency, you just said, and you wrote a book about it. You've orchestrated your company around that. So you yourself say, hey, this is how white collar workers should work. Shouldn't the blue collar workers be able to have the same freedom that you yourself promote for white collar workers? I, I think that's, that's a great debate because it's this fallacy of what blue-collar workers want most of all is the freedom to choose. They want the flexibility. Absolutely not. If you ask these people, what would you rather? Would you rather have the flexibility to set your own hours or would you rather be paid, let's say, 15 bucks an hour, have benefits, have sort of an expectable schedule? They'd go like, of course I'd rather have those things. Of course I'd rather have a predictable income. No, I think you're 100% wrong. You just said yourself that you want to have lunch with your family and go for a walk outside. That's exactly what these people want. They're no different than you did. They're they want to that. drop their kids off at school. No, that's exactly what they're doing. They're dropping their kids off at school. They drive Uber for a couple hours, pick their kids up, drop them off at whatever they're doing in the you know sports or something, and then they go do a couple of rides. That's exactly the pattern of people who are using the gig economy is that they want to do hours of work and pockets that they can set. That is the idealized version of the people who don't live at the edge of precarity. I just heard a stat that was 90% of all the Uber drivers in New York, they work full time. And when you talk to these drivers, as I've done a fair bit, not on Uber because I refuse to to use Uber after the torrent of scandals, but I still use Lyft. And Lyft is essentially the same system with marginally better governance, perhaps. Uh, but when you talk to these workers, like their concerns are not like, oh, yeah. And then like in the morning, I was just playing with my kids. And in, in no, no. Like these are poor people getting exploited. Wait, wait. But if you're saying that they're making less than minimum wage and they're being exploited and they're working full-time, why wouldn't they take one of the massive number of full-time jobs available at Starbucks, Apple, Walmart, Target, all these places that can't find workers today? Those people cannot find workers, and they pay 12 to 15 an hour at those places. Why would they take the car driving job if it's so bad? That's where I think your argument breaks down, because they're opting into it. And you said before, like, well, they're doing it on the margins. But now you're saying they do it full-time, which might be the case in New York. If they are full-time in New York, aren't there better options if they're making under minimum wage, which they're not? Well, clearly there is for a lot of people, right? Which is why the churn is so high. I saw another stat. It's basically like 100% of the drivers churn every year or something like that. Like truly astonishingly high uh, churn rates. And part of that is that people realize what the true cost is after it's been a while. Like taking two Uber rides or doing it for a month, you don't incur any of the costs that are inherent with driving your own automobile around, right? You're not going to be changing tires. You're not going to be having to change a transmission. You're not going to do any of the things that happen if you drive 200,000 miles, right? So I think this idealized version that is, is essentially sort of suburban people who want, just want to make a little bit of extra cash, and that is how this is made up, it's just bunk. It's not. 
It's majority poor people. Well, I think the original idea, by the way, it, it, just maybe the that was idea. what the original intention was. I think the problem is if somebody buys a new car and they're experiencing that huge depreciation, that is an issue. The idea always was with Lyft, especially or Zimride and Sidecar, those first ones was, hey, you got this car already. You might as well use it and make a little extra money on the side and pay for it. And that was sort of the expectation in the early days. And then people liked it so much, the drivers liked it so much, they opted into doing it as careers because those people do have agency and could go work in other jobs. I think it's one of the problems where your argument breaks down, David, is that you think rich people have agency and can change jobs and you think the poor people don't have agency and can't change jobs, they can. This just happens to be a entry-level job. Yeah, and they'll change from from one level of exploitation to the next. If you look at the people who are actually making minimum wage, which, by the way, is not $15 in most of the country, right? Like, it's closer to seven or eight bucks. Oftentimes, people who who are making minimum wage and and dealing with that situation, they don't have real agency. They don't just work one job. They work multiple jobs. And in in any case, as some of these arguments we've had on Twitter, uh, you're an investor in Uber, right? Like, I'm not going to convince you that Uber is a predatory uh, organization that exploits (laughs) poor people because, like, that's just not cognitively dissonant with your position, right? And no, that's I, fair. I, you could, if you want to ask me what my position is, actually, my position on it is I think it's provided a massive safety net for society of an entry level job that anybody can do at any time to make money. And that actually produces this great foundation, which has resulted in us having the lowest unemployment in the history of the country. Because we have these entry-level jobs that people can jump in and out of while they plan for better jobs and increasing their skills, which are freely available to learn on the internet, they can go- Yes, I I think this is great. And and level up. Because this is the American dream pitch, that you start sort of at the entry level, and then you have all the opportunities available to you, and you will pull yourself up, and you will get to a better place. The only problem with that is the American dream is false in America. If you look at any of the studies on social mobility, the U.S. have one of the lowest degrees of social mobility. Wait, false how? False that it's not happening or false that it's not possible? Well, everything is possible. That's an uninteresting discussion on a socioeconomic level. The interesting discussion is at what rates does it happen? At which rate does someone from the bottom 10% end up in, let's just say, the top 40%, right? And it's not even bottom 10%. It's more like in, in, in the bottom 80%. What, what does it take to go from blue collar to, to white collar in the US? And this is one of the things I care about because that's what I went through in Denmark. My parents were absolutely working class. They were probably working class poor. I didn't know. I didn't know until I was maybe 16, 18, because I had no consequences from it. I got a wonderful education. I got a great healthcare system, which, by the way, I needed because I had some hearing issues when I was a, was a kid that required multiple surgeries and so on and so forth. We never paid a dime for it. It was never in our consciousness that access to medical care was, was something that was charged for, right? So I had the experience of essentially living through the American dream of of ending up in a far better place than where I started socioeconomically. And if you look at the statistics, America just sucks for that. Like, if you were born poor, you are likely to end up poor. There isn't this great transmission of poor people ending up being rich people in the U.S. It's possible. There are lottery winners. There are exceptional individuals who will sort of defy the odds. That happens all the time. It happens in all societies. But that is not a great way to gauge whether you have a fair and sound society. And why do I think that is? A lot of it is about these uh, um, sort of baselines, right? That... Hey, can you get a great education if you're poor in the U.S.? It's pretty difficult. You can be an exceptional student, and then maybe you can get scholarships and so on and so forth. But if we're only allowing the exceptional out of poor people to essentially get a proper education, yeah, well, 
we really haven't solved anything structurally. We've just allowed a handful of very fortunate and uh, perhaps very skilled people to perpetrate the myth that the American dream is still alive. And it's not. It's absolutely dead. Yeah. See, that, the only problem with the argument that the American dream is not alive is that I see it every day in what I do here in Silicon Valley, in v- angel investing. Because you see anecdotes. You see anecdotes. You don't see the lived experience of 300 million people. You see a handful of people, and you see the ones that are exceptional by the fact that they're in front of you, right? How many right. poor people are, are making it in front of you, are making a pitch to you? None of them. Right. Or if they are, it's the exceptional proportion of them. Oh, no, that's not true. That's not true. I, I, I would say a large number of them come from blue collar backgrounds uh, with their parents. I, that actually is a trend where that, I think, stress. But again, how, how many people have you seen? A thousand? Two thousand? Ten thousand? Well, besides the two of us on the phone call here. Yeah, it's it's I would say it's a significant portion of startup founders come from that background. But that could be an outlier situation where there is a bias. I guarantee you that it is because I've actually looked at the stats. And if you look at the stats for social mobility, which is the way you rate the American dream, can you go from rags to riches? It happens worse in America than almost any other Western society. And you just go like, for me, as someone who's immigrated to the U.S., I just go with indignation. That is fucked up. How did we end up with such a rich society? Why did you have such a bad, ex- why did you have such a different experience? Because I had an exceptional experience. First of all, I was prepared for that exceptional experience by going through all these safety nets. I guarantee you, I would never have been qualified to work with Jason and sort of start the company and run it for 20 years with him if the Danish state had not paid for my healthcare, had not paid for my education, had not paid for all of these things that made my sort of lived experience such that I didn't feel like I had to drive a taxi like my dad did. Which, I mean, that, that is a literal statement of truth. Like, my dad literally drove a taxi on and off in Denmark for, for quite a while. Uh, my dad was a bartender, so a very similar job. <laughs> and, yeah... I didn't look forward to, to that being my profession. It didn't even occur to me that that was something that I had to do, right? Like I was on a different track right from the get-go because there's a social... How much of you... Go ahead. How much of the upward mobility do you think is people giving up on the American dream and not being motivated to go online and learn? Because when we were coming up, none of this information was available online. Today... Every course at MIT, majority of the courses at Stanford, Harvard are all available for free. And if you had somebody come into your office at 37 Signals, makers of course, Basecamp.com, and they said, listen, I took these six courses over at MIT. Here's my coursework in AI, and you were hiring an AI person. Would you in any way care that they had gone to MIT and paid them or had just done the courses online? And in fact, would you not pick the person who is self-motivated enough to take the six courses in AI machine learning and hire them over the person who paid. Oh, totally. Because I think it would be the latter. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we've never cared about uh, credentials at Basecamp. We don't even look at these things. I don't know at which universities the people who, who work with me at Basecamp graduated from. It's just not interested. We look at the skills. But when you look at those skills, it's absolutely true the information is out there. What is not out there is the time and the prerequisites to chase it. There's a reason when people go to college, they consider that a full-time job. They may work part-time on top of that, but going to college is a full-time job. It's not a whole lot of people who just have 40 hours a week or even 20 hours a week to just say, you know what? I'm going to, after I've been at a brutal minimum wage job, I'm going to get online and I'm going to study for five hours a night. The people who do that, 
they're truly exceptional. And how do we know that? Because there's so few of them. So the the, the proof is in the pudding. Yeah, well, no, maybe not. This may have to do with motivation because, you know, the average American watches four hours of TV a day. So if they swapped out but two hours of that, just a half of it, and watched educational material, would they not in a year or two be upwardly mobile in your mind? No, because th- this is- this They is wouldn't. Bl- blaming poor people. Really? Blaming poor people from their- for their predicament is just, it's not an avenue I think that's very interesting because you can do just comparative social studies. You can look at what happens in societies that have these well-functioning social nets that help people up. Like, what are the broad trends? No, no, I, I would argue, I, I'm, I'm in agreement with you on healthcare and I'm in... Like, I don't think Danes are any smarter than Americans, right? Like, hopefully, that's not something Americans think. Absolutely, it's a better system. We should have a world-class education system like the Danish, uh, obviously. And... and we should have world class, you know, healthcare. Uh, healthcare. But putting that aside, but you can't. The fact is that <laughs> I'm just going to stop you. You can't put those things aside. If all the information is available to learn freely on the internet, freely everywhere you turn, any skill could be learned, and we're hiring people to your own admission based on their skill, not their credentials. Yes. Then maybe the educational system of going to college and spending all this money and having credentialing should give way to just learning skills quickly. No. And the ability to do that on your own. I mean, yes, it is a theoretical ability, and I think it's fine that it's available as uh, as an option, but I think we have a lar- larger responsibility to society than simply cranking out workers. We should be cranking out citizens, people who are broadly versed in not just a narrow technical skill like, oh, I know JavaScript. Yeah, okay, that's good. You know what? We need fewer people who just know JavaScript and more people who know JavaScript and ethics and geography and yeah. all these other things, right? Like th- these are tool skills. This is like, hey, I'm really good with a calculator. What can I do? You know what? That, that's not that interesting. And I think it's, it's really damaging for society as a whole when we look at the purpose of society just being, can you get a job? But it is interesting to add those skills to get out of the low-paying entry-level jobs like delivering for DoorDash, Lyft, or Uber. I agree. It's just not happening, right? You, you can just look at the statistic. Right now, the, the masses working for Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash are not going online, and they're not getting these amazing degrees, right? In fact, they're often getting- Why? Re- Why? Because it's hard, right? Like, I went to a, I took a university degree that was essentially a full-time degree. It had professors, it had classmates, it had all these reinforcing social constructs that help you learn to just sit down on your own in front of a- browser and then expect like you're going to be a world-class programmer you're going to be a world-class it's possible but it's exceptional and on a societal level we can't just look for exceptional solutions we must look for the common solutions that simply empirically work all right so here's one that seems to be working development schools seem to be producing some number of qualified developers and obviously there's some controversy around these income sharing agreements isas Lambda school is one. That's the one most people know. It's, I think you pay 20 or you do 30,000 and they take a percentage of your salary capped at 30 or something like that. Yep. Do you think that's net good for society, that innovation of ISAs? Or do you think it's just a band aid capitalistic? acceleration of what's wrong with the American system. Oh, man, you're really picking up my, on my talking points. That last one, that was a zinger. It is absolutely a bandage on capitalist society failings. The fact that anyone would think that getting a remote sort of learning experience for nine months 
like that's something people should be on the hook for 30 grand for is just truly mind blowing. I think on that particular issue about ISAs, they have all the same incentive pitfalls as subprime mortgages did that essentially the originators of these bonds they get to sell them off and do i mean that's the a controvert well controversy is a shitty word the backlash against lambda right yeah. now is the revelations that they're selling off the isas that they're not aligned yeah they put them into a bundle like mortgages and they sell them to somebody to go collect on them exactly now you're a tranche like, what the fuck? We've reduced people to tranches in a messing, uh, sort of securitized product. And then they're on the hook and they're being promoted. I read some of this promotional materials from some of the hedge funds and lending institutions who are partnering with Lambda about it. And they're all about, this is a great new avenue for attractive uh, returns and you can get 8% on like, hey, these are people. Like, do you know what? There's just something, something aesthetically extremely revolting around packaging people's lives up in this ways, slicing them and then selling them as a securitization. When what we really should have in the first place is what's on the actual docket right now in the political system. Hey, cancel student debt and make higher education tuition free. That's the real solution. If it's the state-run affordable one, not yes. oh, let's give, you know. No, no, no. It's not like let's send everyone to Harvard or Stanford or, yeah, totally. I like the idea of Lambda School because putting aside the, you know, bucketing people into like a tranche of here's a thousand loans, you're going to make 8% on it. I like the fact that it's an option because these are high paying jobs. You have a Really good chance of getting one no. when you graduate, even if it's just 60, no. 70, 80K. Like, first of all, this whole thing with placement rates, I've been getting a lot of information about this. I, really? You think it's a scam? Once I started tweeting about it, I got a bunch of people who knew what things looked like on the inside who started sending me messages. Yep. And oh boy. I think once journalists and so on begin digging into what the actual placement rates are, they're going to see a system at that Lambda is just school. underly, yeah, at Lambda School, that are underly unsustainable. So here, let's do a, um, a thought experiment. If 100 people went through, what do you think the number is that have to get a job in tech, you know, in the entire scale to make it worth having this program? What do you think is the acceptable? Well, the rate? funny thing is, is you can just do the math, right? So let's say you take a, a bond out on someone for 30 grand. What does it cost you to provide the education? And then you go like, let's say it cost five grand to provide the education. You just needed one out of yeah. six to essentially go through. And then you would be break-even if, I mean, all things being equal, you're not considering acquisition costs and so on. This basically means that you can set up a system where you just expect that two out of six, right? Now you're at a profit, that four out of six people, they're going to fail, right? You, you're going to give, you don't know which one is going to fail. It's almost like VC economics where you go like, hey, I just need is, one, yeah. one hit out of 10, then I'm golden and fuck the other nine, right? Like I just need two students out of the six, then I'm golden, fuck the other four. And then you read some of these stories about who the other four were, how they were sold on the program, how they got enrolled in it, what they had to mm. give up in life, and so on. And you go like, you know what? Just going fuck the other four, that's a really terrible way of going. Are they hard selling them? You think they're hard selling them? Oh, absolutely. Like the whole pitch is like, hey, you're working some entry-level job somewhere making, what, $32,000 a year. Here's your golden yeah. new opportunity in the off-worlds. Yeah. <laughs> Jump on this blade on a ship and we're going to take you to a 75K a year job. All you have to do is go through a nine-month program. You're good. You're golden, which is just not true. 
Yeah. And I think that that's, it, it is predatory. And I think it's, it's a bad model. And let's get to the, let's get to the root though. Let's get to the root, which was you labeled the root. This is a bandage. What do you think if they charged $5,000 and then got, you know, whatever, 25K over five years if you got a job, but if you didn't, no problem. I think once you lower the economics to such a level where it's not existential, it's completely different. I'd like those models a lot better. And there are actually a bunch of coding schools that are priced on that. Somebody's doing a free one, right? There's a free code school. Yep, yep, which is wonderful, right? Like, if you're going to do a Band-Aid on the failures of capitalism, do the Band-Aid as charity. I have the utmost respect for the people who try to soften the blow of American capitalism through charity, especially the kind of charity that's not just writing a big check for a tax write-off, but the kind of charity that is personal investment of their time, their empathy into real people. And then there are other schools that are commercial, but commercial on a completely different level. Some guy was just wrote me last week talking about this school that's like 200 bucks a month. I, I have oh, no sense of great. vetting this, but that, that's still, I mean, 2,500 bucks uh, a year. And I think they said the whole program took about 18 months or something. So that's roughly in this in realm of what you're talking about. It's like playing a phone bill, you know, or your cable bill or something, like your phone and cable bill. It's like two of your bills. Yeah, I mean, let's let's not sort of undermine the purpose. We were just talking about precarious gig workers. A lot of them don't have 200 bucks extra a month to, to spend on education. So you're saying poor people can't put together 15 hours to increase their future. So this is where I find yourself a little condescending in that regard. I think even poor people could put the money together and aspire to take one of those courses. Dude, what what is it? Like two-thirds of the American people don't have like $400 for an unexpected bill? I, I think that's the statistic. I think that, yeah, they debunked that. They debunked that headline a bit, yeah. They, the way they asked that, I think, is a little debunked. They, they could. They might have to ask one of their friends for it, yes. The point is, people in our country love to have debt. I don't think they love to have debt. We, I mean, we have a debt-driven society. Even, even affluent people and middle-class people take debt- when they don't need it. Right, because nothing happened on the general sort of income scale from 1980 forward while education, healthcare, and housing just skyrocketed. So the reason people take on a whole lot of debt is that the expectations of living standards that they were seeing growing up they're just not true anymore. For, for most people since 1980 forward, they had no progression in real income and they had astronomic rise in expenses on just the three basics of housing, education, and healthcare. All right. So Jeff Bezos uh, and Bezos Expedition gave you that minimum viable lifestyle. He provided for you this incredible gift, buying shares at an extraordinary price. And for this, you barbecue him incessantly on Twitter as the richest man in the world. Yes. And I was breaking your chops about this. You and I have full contact Twitter, even though... Unfortunately, as we get older, we seem to be agreeing on so much. Everyone becomes a socialist eventually. So I'm just dragging you along a little faster than natural progression. I know. It's so <laughs> true. I tell you, I love capitalism, even late stage capitalism. But I just think that we've screwed up so bad on healthcare and education Yes. that objectively, if we've done this bad, we need to look at who's done it great yes. and just fucking copy the yes. system. Yes. Like literally just need to go over there and fucking photocopy because this is a shit show yes. where people are scared of getting sick and they're not able to just get a basic education at a cheap price. If that's socialism, I'm all in on it. And it is. that That is the huge thing where I'm like, hey, I'm on Twitter advocating for what's being called socialism. I'm like, these reforms are so mild. They're mild. Yeah. They're so sensical. They're even... 
economical when you look at as the GDP discussions we had, right? That's the best part about it is it makes business sense. Yes, this doesn't have to be about ideology and sort of the clash of ideologies, socialism versus capitalism. Hey, I built my business on capitalism free market. It works great for web software. I don't want the state to run web software. I want there to be some regulations, especially around privacy and monopolies and so on and so forth. But like the free market is good. No one is saying the free market isn't good. One of the problems with the breakdown in the discussion is the word socialism is very triggering and being anti-capitalist is also very triggering. So I'm very triggered when people want to take away capitalism. Which no one does. No one does. I mean, there's a fringe group that wants to do Uh, anarchy. Bernie kind of... Bernie is mild. This is what gets me about Bernie. Bernie in Denmark, he would be a middle-of-the-road potatoes centrist. Really? Absolutely. Yeah. What does a radical in Denmark look like? If Bernie's center, what's left of him? The funny thing is, a lot of the stuff that gets called most radical, it's basically like the U.S. 1950. Do you know what the top tax rates were in the 1950s in the U.S.? The U.S. invented the income tax. The U.S. was actually incredibly progressive on taxation for a very long period of time, all the way up until basically Reagan, 1980s. Yeah. All the radicalism that people are freaking the fuck out over now, you're just like, hey, that's American history like 60 years ago. It's not exactly like yeah. it's from a foreign civilization. So on a taxation basis, there are people who want to go all the way up to 60, 70% in Denmark? Oh, it, it was 67% up until a couple of years before I moved. And now it's down around 52, which do you want to know the irony here is? The irony is that in California, my effective tax rate is virtually the same as Denmark. It is 49% or something. Yeah, it's, it's brutal. So you paid the 13 yeah percent on income tax in California, and then you do the 37 on the federal side, like, and you're at 50. And in Denmark, I think it's like 52%. Thank God for capital gains. Just sell shares in your company, never take a salary. Exactly. That's how most people beat it, right? And, and Jason and I, we're the idiots. We just only take salaries. We never take capital gains. So we pay full, full boat. And this is actually why people have to fucking pitch forks out. Well, no, you could pay yourself with a... Uh, dividend. No, dividends gets taxed as income. You you need uh, capital gains. And do you know what? The thing is, I'm not interested. I'm happy paying 50%. 50% is a good number. When's the last time you talked to Bezos? I'm curious. And then does he like ever DM you and be like, bruh, <laughs> I provided you the minimum viable lifestyle. You're breaking my chops and I'm like your number one target on Twitter. I think it's probably about 10 years since we spoke to Bezos last. So what is your main beef with him? That he doesn't pay taxes, that he mistreats the employees. We're we're making this beef personal, and it's not personal. Well, because you say his name in the tweets, it is personal by definition, right? Well, I I call shit out when when I see things that are relevant to Jeff. Like, he's the richest man in the world. I don't know if he currently is, or, I mean, whatever. It changes sometimes from week to week. I mean, aside from Putin, whose wealth is undisclosed, (laughs) he is, yes. Right. In terms of disclosed wealth, yes. <laughs> right. And even if you are sort of competing with Putin on wealth, like you deserve some scrutiny here, right? Like we would like our oligarchs to to undergo some, some scrutiny. And that's what I'm basically saying. The cluelessness of Bezos in this regard, it's really clueless of him to not be self-aware enough to know that when you are the richest person, you do need to take steps. And he did tweet at some point, I don't know if you remember this, like how, how do I give money away? Right. And I was yeah. like, you built a trillion dollar company. So you know how to build a trillion dollars in value and whatever they're selling every year, tens of billions of stuff. Like, I think you'll figure it out, kid. Like there's a lot of ways to give money away. Like just give it to Bill Gates. He seems to know exactly how to lower poverty and mortality rates. Like he's extraordinary at it. Well, let let me give you an even better example. Just pay your workers. 
Like if Amazon had better working conditions, including for people who work in the warehouses, that's a great way of giving back. Just pick a city like Pittsburgh and don't ask them to give you $4 billion. Like there are great ways to run a more ethical business where you're not sort of just trying to hoard all the money. And then at the end of the day, you get your midlife crisis and then you're trying to figure out how to spend it all. No, just not be such a hoarder in the first place. We're all going to be better off if there was a little bit more slack in the system. And I think there's just such a obsession pathology in a lot of American business that is like, we're going to squeeze everything to the last cent and I don't care who we're going to exploit. We're going to get there. And oh, shit, it's the end of the day. Can I buy an art wing somewhere? Can I do a endowment for some university? And you go like, you know what? Philanthropy does not make up for dysfunction. We need structural changes. And I think one of the structural changes we need is that like, you know, we don't need that many billionaires and they don't need to be that rich. So- If we can institute a progressive tax regime where the richest 400 families in the U.S. don't actually pay the lowest effective tax rate in the U.S., that's progress. I'm a big fan of the wealth tax, too. Oh, I hate the wealth tax. I'm a big fan of the estate tax. I'm a big fan of taxes in general. The wealth tax is a disaster. Everybody who's done the wealth tax has regretted it and and gotten rid of it, even France. No, they haven't. No, they haven't. They failed to enforce it because of structural issues in Europe. Do you know how hard it is to go count all of your race cars, put a value on them every year for 1% and then pay it? This is a complete fallacy. You're going to have to get an auditor to come and look at your 12 Ferraris, David, and your 14 Lamborghinis and figure out what the cost of those 27 cars are. And it's so easy. There's a market for these things. No, it's not easy. Then you have to hire like somebody to go assess the value of all them. Hey, hey. Listen, what do you do all day? Don't you do valuations? Don't you do angel deals? Don't you put prices on shit? Yes, you do. There's entire industries focused around this. No, no, we just say it's six million, it's eight million. Great, sounds good. Let's go. That's what we do. We don't hire like some outside person to be like, oh my God. But there was a market. All you need is a market. You don't need a valuator. You just need a market. You need transactions and then you can look at it. And it doesn't even matter. 80% of all the wealth is in publicly valuated stocks, bonds, and assets, financial assets. Those financial assets, they're constantly assessed. That's what the entire public markets are around. We know exactly how much Bezos is worth because basically his entire net worth is his uh, stock portfolio. Well, no, the better thing would be to just have a minimum tax. It would be so much easier if just people paid a minimum tax. Like, I think that would be an easier one to sell. I'm just thinking about the American capitalistic bought and sold government system. Just a minimum where whatever you made, you have to pay a minimum of 20%, even as a crazy rich person with deductions. Like no matter what the deductions are, there is a base level of tax. That's the problem here is that everybody's figured out all these loopholes. That's why the flat tax was such a brilliant movement as well. Just like, let's stop having every possible loophole. Then people rack up losses. Then Trump's like, oh, you know what? If you buy a plane... You can depreciate the whole thing. And literally the entire discussion I hear amongst rich people now is the depreciation of a plane in one year and how amazing this is that Trump did this because you can sell your stock in Amazon, buy the plane, and you're basically not exactly getting it for free, but the depreciation gets counted against those gains that year. It's bonkers. It's not bonkers. It's obscene. And this is why people are sharpening the guillotines. And I think rich people, and I include myself in that group, clearly, we're going to thoroughly regret that we took so much and left so little. All right. As we wrap up here, I know you're anti 
Uber, my number one investment. I know you're also anti-superhuman, my number five investment right now in terms of returns. I'm working on reshaping your investment uh, philosophy, Jason. I mean, I feel like we got halfway there. I know my whole thing, but I can't buy I can't buy equity in your companies. So wait, there's a superhuman killer or corrector of tracked emails that you're coming out with. Explain what it is or what you can explain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's Hey.com. It's a new email service with integrated clients. Hey.com. Great domain. You got Hey.com? We didn't get. We bought expensively Hey.com. <laughs> That's a million dollar domain. It was big bags of money and they were very heavy. That's how I've been apply, or replying people on, on Twitter when they ask about it. Yeah, it was pretty expensive. It's a great domain. H-E-Y.com. Three letter domain is a million. I got $1.5 million for 20.com to 0.com. Yeah. I bought it for seventy, like fifteen. That was years a ago. that was a great investment. And this the the guy who held uh, Hey dot com. This is public records. He he'd held it since I think ninety five. And I'm like, dude, great fucking investment. <laughs> and he was actually using it. He wasn't squatting. Oh, he was using it. Yep. that's cool. So so that was the other thing. So we bought it expensively, and that was part of saying like, hey, we're gonna do something completely on us. It's funny, someone on, on Twitter, when I announced that I was going to come on the show, they pulled up the clip where you had asked something about, hey, so do you want to compete against Gmail? And I said like, oh, no, I'm not at all interested in that uh, in that domain. And, and here we are, I'm building a, essentially a Gmail. Well, competitor is a big word because we're, we're not going for a free email service that tries to get a billion people to, to watch ad or, or have their right. emails mined. So we're going to build a niche service as all paid email services are. But hey.com, it's a new email service with integrated clients. It comes out in April. And we haven't revealed a lot about the features, but one of the things we have talked about is that I'm just furious about the tracking that goes on with email. And your number four investment, Superhuman, was the worst of the bunch. And there was this big expose, I think it was Mike Industries, that put it out, where essentially Superhuman was embedding these spy pixels and then reporting back to the sender when the recipient had opened it, where they had opened it from, how many times they had opened it, and at what time. This is kind of a standard feature, though, and like all sales automation software has this. Salesforce, everything has it. Well, Superhuman did by far the most grotesque, obscene version where they revealed all sorts of detail and aggregation that no one else was doing at the individual level. But you're right. This was something that was happening in other, uh, especially salespeople, software, and so on. There was no other individual email client that had ever gone this far like Superhuman did. So for us, when when we when I read the story about Superhuman, I was just so disgusted. I thought like, this is just the worst. So first it led to a introspection at Basecamp. Like, I wonder what kind of spying pixels we have. And it turned out because we used uh, or we use Mailchimp, uh, it embeds spying pixels by default. And in that case, it mainly just uses it to aggregate open rates. But I went, that's still bullshit. We shouldn't be doing that. So we stopped doing that. No, it also tells you where the IP address was. It gives you location data too in MailChimp. It tells you like 60% of your people are in North America, 30% are here. It gives you that data. Oh, fuck. I didn't even know that. Okay, that's terrible too. So anyway, the pitch here with hey.com is we're going to cut that shit out. We're going to essentially be in a spying pixel blocking client. You, you can detect these things. You can do things about how you proxy images and, and actually the signature. I just looked at a, um, someone from your staff uh, sent me using Superhuman, uh, sent me an email, and I looked up in, in the HTML, and there it was, the spying pixel. It was right there at the top. They use a hidden image. It's like read receipts. It should be... The standard should be like yes. you turn them yes. on. Like I think on iPhone you can set I want read receipts because I want the person to know I read it. That's that's the obvious standard here. I do this with my wife. 
I do this with my wife. I have one person in my entire life who I allow yeah. read receipts for. It's my wife. And it's great. Consent-based read receipts, they're totally right. kosher. Yeah. I'm really impressed by this conversation. I think we, we're on the same page about social democracy, uh, social uh, sort of safety nets, about healthcare, about education, about breaking up big tech. And Bloomberg. We both agree <laughs> Bloomberg should be the next president. So this is great. I think that's another, uh, yeah, that's another uh, two-hour episode. All right, listen, David, it's great to uh, get you back on the pod. And um, you'll be releasing this on your podcast as well. So thanks for having me as a guest. Uh, everybody check out hey.com, basecamp.com, rubyonrails.org. And if you have not read rework back from 2010 it is a great book a lot of great insights in there on how to do remote work and just run an organization uh you're one of a kind david and i appreciate you coming back on the pod well thank you so much for having me let's uh let's not wait 10 years for another one yeah absolutely maybe we'll just make this like we'll do it every year we'll just we'll have the rundown of where we're at all right sounds good man sounds great Rework is produced by Waylon Wong and me, Sean Hildner. Music for the show is by Clipart. Thanks to Jason Calacanis for sharing the audio of his interview with us. You can find his show at thisweekinstartups.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And he's on Twitter at Jason. David is on Twitter at DHH, and I'm sure both of them would be happy to argue about Bloomberg and Bernie and the wealth tax all day long. Our Twitter is at Rework Podcast. We'll be back next week on Tuesday with a regular episode. Unless the class war has started by then, in which case it's been nice knowing you all. You think all this can last? There's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne. You and your friends better batten down the hatches, because when it hits... You're all going to wonder how you ever thought you could live so large and leave so little for the rest of us.